Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're recording this episode on Thursday, June 18th. After some quiet weeks at the new remote Supreme Court, this was a momentous one. On Monday, June 15th, the court decided the much-anticipated case on LGBT employment discrimination, delivering an unqualified win for millions of Americans in states that didn't already protect from such discrimination. And today, the court decided the DACA case, delivering a more qualified win for immigrants, but a big one nonetheless. Chief Justice Roberts was in the majority in both cases that went against the Trump administration. The justices also decided an important environmental case on Monday. Plus, there was lots of action on the orders list, including in those gun and qualified immunity petitions that we've been tracking. And at the end of the show, we'll note some other assorted SCOTUS news and what's left for the rest of the term. We have a couple great guests coming on to talk about the Title VII cases, but first, Kimberly, let's clear the gun and qualified immunity denials off the docket, like the court did. As we talked about on recent episodes, there have been a bunch of petitions pending on the Second Amendment and qualified immunity, the doctrine that shields law enforcement from civil liability. Those petitions have been piling up at the court, and on Monday, the justices denied pretty much all of the petitions that they were considering from gun advocates and those trying to take down the immunity doctrine. Huge setbacks for both sets of lawyers and interest groups in those cases uh, shows the court has no interest in taking on either controversy anytime soon. And only Justice Thomas dissented from the denial in a qualified immunity case. He also dissented from a gun denial joined by Justice Kavanaugh. And as to those qualified immunity cases, there has been some movement in Congress to tackle the issue, but it doesn't seem like there's Republican support for the effort, and the White House has said it's a non-starter. So this is an issue we could be talking about yet again at the court next term. And besides the Title VII cases and DACA, there was actually another opinion this week on Monday in an argued case that got overshadowed a bit. Uh, Well, actually, quite a bit. A little bit. This environmental case is the case where groups challenged the construction of the $8 billion Atlantic Coast Pipeline that would cross under the Appalachian Trail. The question was whether the U.S. Forest Service acted lawfully in granting a permit for the project. Listeners might recall a special episode that we ran on cases and controversies from our environmental desk colleague, Ellen Gilmer, who went out to the trail and talked to the people involved in the case. So, Kimberly, what happened here? Well, in a 7-2 opinion by Justice Thomas, the court sided with the industry against the environmental groups. The justices said that the Department of Interior's decision to assign responsibility over the Appalachian Trail to the National Park Service did not transform the land over which the trail passes into land within the National Park Service, and therefore the Forest Service, not the National Park Service, had the authority to issue the special use permit. Totally easy to understand, right? Got it. Justices Sotomayor and Kagan dissented, uh, so the decision removes a big obstacle in getting that huge project completed. And before we turn to the main events here, I'll just note that we did get another opinion on Monday. It wasn't in an argued case, and it was even more overshadowed than the environmental case. But in an unsigned per curiam opinion, the court ruled in favor of a Texas death row inmate, Terrence Andrews. For a defendant to win an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, just by way of some background, 
found here. The lawyer needs to have been deficient in the representation, and the defendant also needs to have been prejudiced by that deficiency. So the Supreme Court said here that Andrews's lawyer was deficient for his lack of investigation into mitigating evidence, which is an important aspect of death penalty cases. But the Supreme Court said that the Texas top criminal court might have failed to properly engage with the question of whether the defendant was prejudiced by the deficiency, so the Supreme Court sent it back to Texas for a further review. Now, we've seen the justices take this particular court to task before. Mm -hmm. So what's remarkable about this decision, Jordan? So it's important enough in its own right, but I'll just note that it sparked a pretty spirited dissent from Justice Alito on Monday, which was sort of a theme from him that day. Uh, He wrote in this Texas case that, quote, the court clears this case off the docket, but it does so on a ground that is hard to take seriously, end quote. And so he went on to argue that the Texas court did, in fact, consider the thing that that the Supreme Court majority said it might not have. And Alito wrote that maybe the majority thinks the Texas court should have, quote, used capital letters or bold type, or maybe it should have added, and we really mean it, end quote. And in Alito's dissent, he put capital letters in capital letters, and he added three exclamation points after really mean it. So it's not the usual fare that we're uh, used to seeing from the Supreme Court, at least not in in every case, but Monday was a a bit of a day there for Justice Alito. Yeah, usually it's just like two exclamation points if you want to make your Make yeah. your point, right? Two is fine. Three is, you know, Oof. that that rises to the level of something you're going to you're going to make it onto the cases and controversies podcast. <laughs> so, that dissent was joined by Thomas and Gorsuch, both of whom have been on the opposite side of defendants in ineffective assistance of counsel cases. And so, I think it's important to point out about Gorsuch in particular, who we've pointed out in the past has sided with the Democratic appointed justices on some other criminal issues, but that just hasn't been the case so much in ineffective assistance of counsel or in death penalty cases. Okay, well, let's get to the two big opinions that we got this week. We'll start with the DACA decision that we got today before talking about Monday's Title VII cases with our guests. In a group of consolidated cases under the lead case DHS versus Regents, Chief Justice Roberts, joined by the court's four Democratic appointees, wrote the opinion siding with the Dreamers against the Trump administration. That's right. It was a huge win for the some 700,000 DACA recipients brought illegally to the U.S. as children. Under the Obama-era program, they've received temporary relief from deportation and work authorization and other federal benefits. The Trump administration, of course, sought to undo the program, as we know, but the Supreme Court said that the way that the Trump administration tried to undo the program, actually ran afoul of administrative law. So it's an issue that a lot of people around the country have been following politically, but legally we're getting into pretty technical ground here. Kimberly, can you explain a bit more about that? Sure. So this is the uh, Administrative Procedure Act that we're looking at. This was the same law that we were talking about a year ago in another big end-of-term decision with Roberts and the liberals in majority against the Trump administration. And that, of course, was the census case. Here in the DACA case, Roberts said for the court that the Department of Homeland Security's decision to rescind DACA was arbitrary and capricious under the APA. And among other things, the court said that the administration hadn't sufficiently considered the reliance on DACA by Dreamers. So, Kimberly, even though the Trump administration lost here, the government could still just uh, try to rescind the program again if it 
complies with the proper procedures, right? So this could just be a, a temporary win for the Dreamers, couldn't it? Yes, in some ways, it has really become a political issue. Uh, after the ruling, Joe Biden said that making DACA permanent would be his priority for his m- administration on day one, if elected. And Trump tweeted after the ruling, do you get the impression that the Supreme Court doesn't like me? <laughs> well, you know, I'm actually not so sure about that, even in this case. And that's because even though he did lose uh, five to four on those administrative law grounds that we talked about, uh, the Supreme Court did give him an eight to one victory of sorts on equal protection grounds. So there were two main claims that were at issue here, the administrative law one, which is what the court ruled on, and then this equal protection grounds, which is the plaintiffs wanting to get into President Trump's animus towards immigrants, including statements they had made uh, before he was president while he was campaigning. Uh, But only Justice Sotomayor, in a separate opinion, said she thought that the court should be able to delve into President Trump's animus against immigrants. She pointed to statements he made saying that Mexican immigrants are people that have lots of problems, the bad ones, criminals, drug dealers, rapists. But the rest of the majority, besides Justice Sotomayor, along with the dissenting justices, agreed that there wasn't enough evidence to raise such an animus claim. And that's even though Justice Sotomayor argued that it was premature at this point in the litigation to cut off that potential avenue of relief, but the rest of the court disagreed. So even though this administration failed to comply with administrative procedures, the president's off the hook for his own statements here, even if they were to again try to rescind the program and wind up back in court again. So in that sense, the opinion kind of brings to mind the travel ban ruling where the Republican appointed majority said the court couldn't look into the president's prejudicial statements, but here it's the whole court besides Sotomayor saying so. So now it's a situation where it could even be easier for the administration to rescind the program again, and they won't have to worry about these statements from the president. They just need to do sort of a more competent job of trying to rescind the program. And legally, they'll be able to do it, it seems. Well, sure. I mean, this is much like the census litigation where the Trump administration technically could um, add the citizenship question, but ended up not doing so. So Kimberly, even if the administration decided that they wanted to rescind the program again today before the election, aside from whatever political ramifications that might have, just practically speaking, the way that this administrative law works, would they even necessarily be able to complete such a thing before the upcoming election? It seems like a pretty close timeline in order for them to be able to do so. We've got, what, five more months until, um, less than five months until the presidential election. So Mm -hmm. uh, this may be a situation like the census litigation where uh, the Supreme Court doesn't say that they can't do it, but that's really what the practical result is. But I also just wanted to note uh, in a theme that we'll see echoed in the Title VII cases, uh, the dissenters here in the DACA case had some pretty tough words for the majority. Writing for himself, Alito, and Gorsuch, Thomas calls the majority's decision mystifying. And he said that while the majority only, quote, acts as though it is engaging in routine application of standard principles of administrative law, really what it's doing is an effort to avoid a politically controversial but legally correct decision. So so a little, little disagreement there, as uh, we've seen this week from the dissenters in these big cases. And it wasn't just limited to the justices in dissent, right? We saw this echoing in the uh, political sphere with Republicans across the country criticizing both of these 
big cases this week. And as happened after the Title VII decision on Monday, when it came to Justice Gorsuch in particular, we saw today Republicans across the country lamenting what they saw as conservative betrayal from a Republican appointee, again, this time Chief Justice Roberts, who was in the Title VII majority as well. Uh, For example, here's Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who clerked for Chief Justice Rehnquist and argued a bunch of Supreme Court cases himself, calling out the current chief for his tie-breaking DACA vote. Judging is not a game. It's not supposed to be a game. But sadly, over recent years, more and more Chief Justice Roberts has been playing games. And Justice Alito added his own dissent to the DACA case, saying that our constitutional system isn't supposed to work the way that it did in this case, where the judiciary effectively prevented the president for an entire term from carrying out the initiative. And Kavanaugh wrote his own dissent, one that's been sort of characteristic of his separate writings since he's been on the court, where He seems to agree with the bottom line of other Republican-appointed justices, but using some milder language. Well, we'll see some of those harsh words again uh, in the Title VII dissents, so uh, why don't we get to those cases now? Let's do it. This was another loss for the Trump administration with Roberts in the majority, but this time with Gorsuch too. Gorsuch actually wrote the opinion in the consolidated Title VII cases, Bostick versus Clayton County, Altitude Express versus Zarda, and RG and GR Funeral Home versus EEOC. At issue is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act's prohibition against making hiring and firing decisions on the basis of sex. And the question here is whether, quote, sex discrimination outlawed there encompasses protections for LGBTQ workers as well. In a 6-3 opinion by Justice Gorsuch, the Supreme Court said, yes, it does. And we've previously noted that Gorsuch's professed textualist leanings could have made of the swing vote here, but... Remember, his comments at the argument way back when made it seem like he could have gone either way. Yeah, right. When a case is really close, really close on the textual evidence, and I assume for the moment I'm, yeah. I'm with you on the textual evidence, is close, okay? We're, we're not talking about extra textual stuff. We're talking about the text. It's close. A judge finds it very close. At the end of the day, should he or she take into consideration the massive social upheaval that would be entailed in such a decision and the possibility that, that Congress didn't think about it so, and that, um, that that is a more, effect, more appropriate legislative rather than a judicial function. That, that's it. It's a question of judicial modesty. Well, in the opinion, Gorsuch so, said that the all, answer to that question is clear. Quote, an employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. So Gorsuch noted that the drafters of the law might not have anticipated this outcome, but he said, quote, when the express terms of a statute give us one answer and extra textual considerations suggest another, it's no contest. So a ruling applying the textualist framework that's been more characteristic of the conservative side of the judiciary uh, led to a more liberal result here. And that opinion was joined by Chief Justice Roberts, as well as Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. And we got a lengthy dissent here from Justice Alito, joined by Justice Thomas, and yet again, a separate dissent from Kavanaugh. Kimberly, you've been keeping the stats on this this term, and Previously, we spoke about how Kavanaugh was the only justice in the majority 100% of the time, and the chief was close behind him, but now it seems like Roberts has 
taken over the majority title with these this week's two big rulings, right? That's right. So Kavanaugh broke his um, 100% streak in um, these LGBTQ and DACA cases, and it looks like the Chief Justice has taken a slight lead. But there are still more cases to come, 15 in fact. So in Alito's dissent on Monday's case, he had some pretty strong language continuing with his theme of the day. He said, quote, there's only one word for what the court has done today, legislation. The document that the court releases is in the form of a judicial opinion interpreting a statute, but that is deceptive, he said. And Alito went on to say that Gorsuch's opinion is like a pirate ship that merely sails under a textualist flag. Um, Whatever that means. I think somebody pointed out that um, on Twitter that actually pirate ships have pirate flags, right? Well, whatever the uh, meaning behind there, it seemed to be a little uh, strong for Justice Kavanaugh, who, uh, as we mentioned, has in some ways been more measured in his separate writings, even if he goes to the same bottom line. So here again in the Title VII dissent, Kavanaugh, in his own dissent, he went out of his way to acknowledge what he called the important victory achieved today by gay and lesbian Americans. Um, He didn't reference uh, transgender Americans there, not clear why exactly, but he still said in the end, his bottom line was, quote, instead of a hard-earned victory won through the democratic process, today's victory is brought about by judicial dictate, Judges latching on to a novel form of living literalism to rewrite ordinary meaning and remake American law, end quote. So we're seeing some uh, breaks there within the conservative ranks with Gorsuch writing this big opinion and the chief going along as well. So we also saw some of that anger uh, in the dissent replicated in some parts of the conservative legal and political community who were quite critical of uh, Justice Gorsuch and the chief justice here. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, who clerked for the chief justice, said that the decision marks the end of the conservative legal movement. If you can invoke textualism and originalism in order to reach a decision, an outcome, that fundamentally changes the scope and meaning and application of statutory law, then textualism and originalism and all of those phrases don't mean much at all. So there's a lot to unpack in that decision. Let's turn to our guests who both filed briefs in these cases supporting the employees. Nicole Saharsky is co-head of Mayor Brown's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. She's argued 30 Supreme Court cases and was previously an assistant to the Solicitor General. Her firm has launched the first-of-its-kind virtual pride parade for this month, and one of the stops on that parade later this month, which all of you listeners should check out, will feature a discussion of the terms LGBT cases with our other guest, Omar Gonzalez Pagan. So we're lucky to have a little preview of that discussion here. Omar is a senior attorney and the healthcare strategist at Lambda Legal. He's worked on a number of big civil rights cases over the years, in addition to the Title VII cases we're discussing today, including the Supreme Court's 2015 ruling guaranteeing marriage equality. Nicole and Omar, thanks for joining us on Cases and Controversies. So, Omar, talking about the Title VII case here, how would you place this decision in the context of landmark civil rights rulings throughout the court's history? I certainly think it's one of the biggest, right, uh, and would put it up there with Lawrence. The reason being is that this opens the door to LGBTQ people's participation in society writ large. Uh, everybody, or almost everybody, needs a job in order to have a home, to have access to education, to have access to health care, and, and the like. Um, And more broadly speaking, this is also the first major 
transgender rights case decided by the Supreme Court. Um, and so really it is a historic moment that just happened, one that I hope will be a galvanizing moment for our movement and to continue the work forward to make sure that this decision is has ramifications for all aspects of our lives. One thing we want to discuss in the context is also take note of um, the plaintiffs in the cases. Uh, really, these are people who sacrificed years of their life fighting unjust discrimination that they endured, and two of them didn't even live to see the outcome of their cases. Uh, I'm talking of Amy Stevens and Donald Sardis specifically. And so I, I think it's an example of how justice delayed is justice denied for some people. Um, but at the same time, their sacrifice has now made the lives of so many other individuals across the country better. So, Nicole, I'm wondering, what is the immediate impact of the ruling for workers and employers? Well, I mean, this federal protection applies nationwide. And before this decision, there was really a patchwork of state regulations. And I don't even know if patchwork's the right word, because there are some states that had no protections at all. And so it's kind of a missing patch, if anything. And, um, you know, and so individuals just based on where they lived would have perhaps some level of protection. But to have federal protection that applies nationwide, you know, is a big deal. It brings uniformity. It brings certainty. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about this case is the very strong support from the business community coming in on the side of the employees here and saying, you know, there needs to be this comprehensive federal protection. Do you have any idea about the number of people that will be affected by this ruling? Sure. So there's approximately, uh, let's say, 13 to 14 million LGBT people in the United States and approximately just a little over half live in states that did not have explicit protections when it came to employment. Wow. And so obviously that's a huge immediate impact just even on the employment context alone. But either Omar or Nicole, can either of you speak to any potential other contexts where we can see this ruling applying going forward outside of employment? One of the first questions I would have would be with respect to fair housing. Um, fair housing, the Fair Housing Act, Title VIII, I think has a prohibition on discrimination based on sex, and that seems very similar to the language at issue here. So that would be a first question I would have about application. That's, that's right. I, I would wholly agree. And actually, the Fair Housing Act, Lambda Legal brought the only two cases to have recognized um, that the Fair Housing Act applies to discrimination based on transgender status or sexual orientation. That was the, our Wetzel case and our case of Smithy Avanti in Colorado on behalf of a couple, a lesbian couple, one of whom was a transgender woman. And so now we don't have to make the litigation, I believe, as hard in terms of proving coverage. This decision will help us uh, in, in doing that. And it certainly will have effects as well on Title IX. Uh, on discrimination on the basis of sex, and most presently on uh, right now with regards to healthcare and the announcement by the administration that they were rolling back uh, provisions in regulations that sought to protect uh, transgender people from discrimination in healthcare. So it's certainly a a big ruling that has some broad implications. But are there any ways that the court in the future can kind of cut back um, on this ruling? I'm wondering in particular about um, the religious uh, context. Well, I mean, the court's already the court's opinion, I think, already suggests that there are perhaps some religious exemptions that might come into play uh, discussing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and, you know, Probably most people who follow the court know that the court has struggled uh, in the masterpiece cake uh, case with trying to uh, what they saw as balance 
um, the rights of the, the LGBT individuals with um, the rights of the people who didn't want to make the cake. And so I, I'd be shocked if those kind of challenges or exemptions, claims for exemptions didn't continue. Absolutely. And there's some cases that are currently pending in this term right now with regards to the ministerial exception, for example, that will have a big um, impact on how this ruling will be interpreted in the future. And so we have Justice Gorsuch, uh, the Republican appointee, writing this big decision here for LGBT rights. I'm curious, both Nicole and Omar, were either of you surprised both in terms of Gorsuch being in the majority and writing the decision, and also Chief Justice Roberts being in the majority too, given some of his previous rulings in similar areas. I would say I wasn't surprised that Justice Gorsuch was in the majority, nor that necessarily that he authored the opinion. Um, in the end, we needed another person besides fake counting to four, and so he seemed like one of the most likely candidates, um, if not the most likely, based on how oral argument went, as well as prior decisions uh, on 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 statutory interpretation and textualism. A little more surprised, I would say, about Roberts. I think I was surprised by both. And looking back, I think perhaps I shouldn't have been about Justice Gorsuch. As Omar said, he did ask some questions at oral argument that suggested that he was really digging into these issues and interested and perhaps struggling with some of the arguments on the other side. And then if you think about his relationship, you know, with Justice Kennedy, you could see uh, him potentially filling that role, too. But, you know, the chief justice in the gay marriage cases, I think, you know, wasn't wasn't really willing to kind of strike out there and join the majority. And so the fact that he did here does seem pretty noteworthy. So both the majority opinion and both of the dissents um, focus on textualism. And I'm just wondering what you guys think um, the ramifications for textualism is going forward and whether or not this was kind of a win um, for textualism, which has really been kind of um, embraced by those on the right. Well, I would just say that textualism is just an ideology for interpretation, for judicial interpretation of statutes. And and so like any other judicial ideology, it it doesn't answer every question. And you have three opinions in which people claim they were applying textualism and coming out um, to different conclusions. And so uh, I just think it, the idea that judicial confirmation should happen with somebody saying that I adhere to this judicial doctrine or this judicial ideology um, is is setting yourself up to be disappointed. Uh, cases will be decided differently by different judges, notwithstanding the application of the same process. I guess I felt like this was a very robust form of textualism because there were a lot of different principles, you know, that the Supreme Court has set out before that came into play here you know, what do you do with uh, things that were suggested in Congress and weren't enacted? What kind of weight do you put on that? You know, what kind of weight do you put on the original intent of the enacting Congress? What about the hiding elephants in mouse holes canon? You know, there was just a lot of different aspects of statutory interpretation, which I wouldn't call all strictly textualist that came into the court's analysis. But, you know, if that's if textualism is, is going to be this more robust form of textualism, you know, I'm I'm fine with that because I think the court should consider all of those factors. Is there a better named canon than the um, the elephants and mouse holes canon? <laughs> but yeah, I, I fully agree with Nicole. And ultimately, you know, uh, we, we also knew the court that we were dealing with right and 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 so you you argue to the court that you have not the one that you wish you have and so we we made small c conservative arguments about statutory interpretation knowing full well 
that those were the ones that would have a possibility of of attracting a majority in the court. I, I agree. I thought the litigation strategy here was really smart, you know, trying to kind of give this broad base of support to the justices. You know, the, some of the arguments that Omar discussed, you know, the business community support. It's just, you know, by the time you get this opinion from the court, the court makes it look like this is really obvious, you know, not just the right thing to do, but the right answer as a legal matter. And, you know, it's kind of nice that the court, act, you know, acted like this was very clear as opposed to, you know, being some huge controversial move. And so the last question here before we let you go, uh, Kimberly and I were previously talking about the different dissents a little bit here. And we noted how Justice Kavanaugh wrote his own separate dissent. Of course, he's the justice who replaced uh, Justice Kennedy, who is on the other end of all of the uh, rulings in these cases. Wondering what you both uh, made of his dissent, including the fact that he de- you know, decided to dissent separately and also included this acknowledgement of the historic nature of the decision. Why do you think that he wrote separately and included this uh, separate language in it, too. It seemed to me that he was filling the role that the chief justice has filled in prior cases in terms of, you know, saying this is a, a role for Congress or it's not time for us to be stepping in this kind of more incrementalist role as opposed to, you know, some big disagreement on the merits. And it just seemed like that was a message that that he really wanted to get across in his separate opinion. He certainly also seemed to be parsing out textualism even further between what he was calling literalism versus actual textualism. And um, and ultimately, I thought it was interesting if you look at the decisions, both the decisions this week in terms of Title VII for LGBTQ people, but also DACA, he dissented separately as well. And in both decisions, I would say the vein of what he talks about is, um, this is a big problem. I'm very glad for you all. Um, but you still lose if you if it was just me making the decision. And it seems uh, uh, wants to have his cake and eat it too. All right. Um, well, that was a really interesting interview. Uh, Kimberly, I guess we'll see how this ruling winds up applying in future cases. Oh, yeah. And one more thing. The uh, Just so we're all on the same page as our listeners here, this elephants in mouse holes canon, just so it doesn't sound like we're uh, making something up here. Kimberly, what, what, what is it that, uh, what does that mean? Well, just generally, it means that when Congress wants to do something really, really big, like protect LGBTQ workers, they're not going to do it in a way that, you know, is is understated. They're not going to really hide these big policy shifts um, in, you know, small ways that are hard to decipher. Um, They're going to come out and they're going to say it out in the open. So uh, this week was a little bit ridiculous in terms of SCOTUS news. So Jordan, I think you probably um, have some more news that um, you have to share with us, but how about you just wrap it all up in one line and see if you can do it. Okay, so this is it. The court this week also blocked an execution for religious reasons. Solicitor General Francisco is officially stepping down on July 3rd, and President Trump said he's going to release another short list of Supreme Court nominees after today's DACA decision. How's that? Um, I guess it's okay. You did, however, forget that um, the Supreme Court's website crashed on Monday. Oh, that's true. Uh, in a very inopportune time, right when they were releasing the Title VII decision. So that was a lot of that was a lot of fun. Anyway, uh, before we finally let you go, I'll note some of the pending decisions that we could be talking about on future episodes as soon as next week. We know that we'll be getting more opinions on Monday and maybe another additional opinion day that week. And we're still waiting on opinions on abortion, religion, and school funding. 
subpoenas for President Trump's financial records, and more. Well, uh, be sure to tune in next week and see what we have for you. And until then, thanks for listening. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, superfund, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.